The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And he said, See, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the prince, priest of Bethel, said to Amos, O seer, go to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, prophesy there. But Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet nor a prophet's son. I am a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. The German scholars would say, determine the Sitzemleben of this passage, the setting in life. This passage is 150 years after the death of King Solomon, when his son Rehoboam was not able to hold the 12 tribes together. They had separated again north and south. The 10 in the north called Israel, and the 2 in the south called Judah. In the north, King Ahab had come to power. He married a pagan wife named Jezebel. She brought into the royal residence gods and goddesses of fertility. A hundred years later, Jeroboam was now king of those northern tribes, and he built a new sanctuary up at Dan, a place where the spring waters bubble up thousands upon thousands of gallons and helped begin the Jordan River and erected their golden calves. In the southernmost part of his realm, down along the Jordan River at Bethel, he had a new sanctuary built and erected there the golden calves. Signs again of the old gods and goddesses of fertility. Amos doesn't live in Israel. He lived in Judah. He lived in the southern tribes. He lived in a little town called Tekoa, about 10 miles immediately south of Jerusalem. He was a herdsman and a dresser of Ficus sycamorus. The Ficus sycamorus tree is not at all like the sycamore trees in Oklahoma. Ficus sycamorus has figs that form on the tree, but if they are allowed to mature on the tree, they became fibrous and hard. People discovered that if that fruit were scored just a little bit, scratched, that to heal the wound, if you would, it would produce lots of sugar and became a really wonderful fruit. So when the fruit appeared, they would scratch them, scratch them, a dresser of Ficus sycamorus. He felt God was sending him to the north, into Israel, to point out all the mistakes the people there were making. Scholars believe Amos only worked at this about a year. In fact, he would say to Amaziah, the high priest at Bethel, I'm not a prophet. My father was not a prophet. I'm a herdsman. I'm a dresser of Ficus Sycamorus. But God sent me here to tell you what I'm telling you. Let's look at this passage. Number one, he said, God showed me a plumb line. Now, you know that the plumb line is a string with a bob on the end. 
This word in Hebrew literally means lid, so a little lid weight at the end of a string. It was used for determining perpendiculars. A wall that was not perpendicular to the earth's gravity would eventually be a very weak wall. I'm going to put the plumb line in the middle of my people. What he means by that is, it's now been 1,100 years since Abraham and Sarah. If you do not know me by this time and what I expect from you, you ought to know. You ought to know I expect more from you. Did you see Tim Sanders' story? He said when he was a little boy, five years old, his mother and father decided to leave Texas and seek a new fortune in California. They had an old beat-up car, but they started driving from Texas to California, and they got as far as Odessa. They checked into a little motel there, and while they were there, they got into a big row with each other. And the daddy went one way, and the mother went the other, and both left the five-year-old child at the motel. He said, I waited and waited for them to come back, and when they didn't, I started to cry. A maid cleaning heard him, called the manager. They called the police. He was able to tell them enough that they found a grandmother in Clovis, New Mexico. Called her. She said, I will come and get him. He said, it seemed forever. But when her old car finally pulled up and she jumped out and ran toward me, Threw her arms around me, she said, It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Now he said, I learned later that her husband had just abandoned her. She was on her own. She had very little to share with a five-year-old child. But we had something to eat. She put me to bed. Next morning, I heard her rustling in her room. I opened the door, peeked. And I saw her go to her favorite chair, sit down, pick up her Bible, and start to read. And she read 10, 15 minutes, laid her Bible down, knelt beside her chair, and prayed. And then she came to get me up for breakfast. She taught me to get up with her every morning. She'd read 10, 15 minutes. We would both kneel and pray, and she would say, The Lord has got his arms around us. He said, I started to school that fall. She started taking me to Sunday school and to church. When I was 12, I got to go to summer camp. I loved it. I met the Lord in the church there. I knew, I knew the love of God. He said, I wanted to be an athlete in that little town of Clovis, New Mexico. Tried to play baseball. I couldn't hit it. Tried to play basketball. I couldn't score. Tried to play football. I was too little. My grandmother kept saying, try something different. And I became a debater. A debater. My partner and I won more than 200 debates in the last three years. I was in school there. I was president of my senior class. I received an academic scholarship to Loyola Marymount in California. I went away to school. I did well. I married a beautiful young woman. I went to work for Yahoo when it was on the upswing. Everything was going well for us. I got a call from another family member that my grandmother was battling cancer. I called her and said, you are coming to live with me. You took care of me one time. I'm taking care of you. 
we got some of the finest doctors in America out here, and we will see that you get the very best. He said, I didn't realize she could see how miserable and unhappy I really was. And one time we had a moment together, and she asked, why are you not happy? I said, I don't know. And she asked, are you doing all the things I taught you to do? And he said, none of them. She said, then that's why you're unhappy. Get up and read from God's book and pray to God. And Sunday, you go to Sunday school and church and your life will change again. He said she got great care, and we took her home to Clovis, but I changed, and my life changed. I started doing those basic things she had taught me to do when I was five, and they still worked. God expects more of you and me, expects more of us. We know. We know who God is and what God expects of us. Number two, I'm not going to pass Israel by again, God said. I'm not. Meaning, I am the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but it's finally come your turn, Israel. You're about to pay. You're about to face the judgment. Some weeks ago, OETA replayed the series of Ken Burns on the Civil War. When it first was shown, I don't know, I had several different things going, maybe here at the church, and I really missed it. Didn't get started, and I didn't watch it. This time I did watch. Gail watched. And the carnage of that war was just unbelievable. It was just amazing. So with great interest, I read that a new book has just come out called Mightier Than the Sword. You know the old quotation, the pen is mightier than the sword. And this author says that Harriet Beecher Stowe's book should have changed America even more than it did. It was published in 1852. The first year, it sold three times more than any other book published in America that year. Five years after it was published, a black farmer in Maryland was arrested and tried for just having one of those books in his possession and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Because Harriet Beecher Stowe's book said, black people have feelings. When a white slave owner forces himself on a black woman, she has feelings. When she's made to bear that child, she has feelings. When her black child is auctioned off and sold and she never sees it again, it hurts. When her husband is sold or she's sold and taken hundreds of miles away, it hurts. Black people are real people. They're children of God. They have feelings like every white child of God. But we didn't get it. If we got it, we did nothing about it. And in 1861, nine, nine years after the book came out, the plumb line came to America. It came. One day at Antietam, we lost more young men than we lost the day of the Normandy invasion. 
it was absolutely horrendous. For four years, we lost more of our young men than we've lost in any other war in our history, including World War II, because the plumb line came. Number three, Amaziah the priest at Bethel knows that he's got to get along with King Jeroboam. So he tells Amos, go home, please. Go home. Go away. Earn your bread there. Earn your living there. Go away. We don't want you in Bethel. Tried to get rid of him. But the message, the message was clear. Some of you have seen these great art museums of the world. And you know that in these great museums, they rarely put all of one artist's work in one room because some artists are more popular than others and they'd have bigger groups than they could handle and then in another room, not so many. So what you usually have in these great museums is perhaps a whole floor devoted to the 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, 18th, and so on. So some of the paintings you really like and some of the ones not so much. In early May, when Gail and I spent that time in New York and then in Washington, we sometimes spent six and seven hours a day in an, in an art museum. By the seventh hour, you sort of drag it. And so we'd go into one of these big rooms, and she'd go left and I'd go right. And if she saw an artist that she knows both of us like, she would, and if I saw one, I would tell her. Otherwise, you keep moving. Well, one of our favorites from 400 years ago, Diego Velasquez, great Spanish artist, painter. But perhaps his best known is called the Water Cellar of Seville. We've seen the water cellars in Seville. The first time we were in Seville, we arrived on a Sunday afternoon it was 110 degrees, and 75,000 people were sitting in a soccer stadium watching soccer with 110-degree sun beating down on their heads. I couldn't believe it. The water cellars were popular. We've been in the Casbah in Marrakesh, Morocco, when it's 112, 115 degrees. The water cellars have big bags of water, usually, that they carry under their arms, sort of like a bagpipe has a little hose. Nowadays, they have a dispenser with paper cups. Not 400 years ago when Velasquez painted. And so in his painting, you have an old man who's dispensing the water. In the background, you have a fellow who might be the father of a young boy who looks like he's 10 or 11 years old, perhaps. And this older man is about to give him or sell him a drink of water. That's what it looks like, simply said. Ah, but art historians say, no, no, this is far more than that. Look carefully. This older man with the water is wearing a robe like monks of that time wore. And this glass being given to this boy is beautiful. It's crystal. It's like a chalice. And it's not a bag of water, goat skin, 400 years ago. It's a jug 
a huge jug with little rivulets of water that have spilled down the side. Maybe like those in Cana of Galilee, where water became wine. Velasquez is trying to say the old priest is offering to this child the bread and wine of life. Of life. That's what Amos was trying to do. Come on, Israel. Turn around. You're going in the wrong direction. Turn around and come home. Number four. Go to Judah. Amos said, can't do that. I heard a bigger voice saying, go to Israel. That's why I'm here. I'm here doing what I believe Yahweh Elohim sent me to do. Recently I saw a new survey of nonprofit organizations in the United States. It wasn't including churches and synagogues and mosques, but those not directly owned by a religious body as such, a church. And in most of these polls, you know the number one most admired Salvation Army. Just almost every time. Red Cross is usually very high. Salvation Army rates really high. You know the Salvation Army was founded by a Methodist preacher, do you not? He was born in 1829 in a small town up in Nottingham, England. William Booth was born into a family with some money. But by the time he was 13, his father had made a series of bad investments and had lost everything. William Booth had to drop out of school because there were no public schools. All of them were private, all of them expensive. He had to drop out of school. His father began to drink heavily day and night and within a year was dead. Booth was still only 13. He had to have a job. He had three sisters and a mother. He had to have a job. And the only way he could get a job was to be an apprentice. And the only apprenticeship available at that time in the small town where he was born was in a pawnbroking shop, to be a pawnbroker. And he started to work there. Two years he was there till he was 15. And one night he went down the street to a revival the Methodists were having. And he heard the hymns, and he heard the preaching, and he went forward and was baptized and believed with all his heart Almighty God had claimed him as one of his children. He became a lay preacher at 15, telling what God had done for him. He knew he needed more education. He had no money. So he began to read everything he could get his hands on, just reading everything he could get his hands on. At 20, he decided, if it's wonderful to preach to 100 in my little town, how about 1,000 in London? And he moved to London. His great compassion was for the poor, the poorest of the poor in London. At 20, he moved there and began to preach. He met and married a young woman. She pitched everything she had into this ministry with him. She would record in her diary that there were nights he would come home 
a number of them with a bloodied bandage on his head because some hooligan had thrown a rock while he was trying to preach. But they did not quit. They stayed in that poorest section of London year after year after year. One night when William Booth was already 49 years old and was being asked, how has this ministry succeeded? You've been here nearly 30 years now in London. How have you succeeded? And he said, because we have a volunteer army. And somebody else said, Mr. Booth, you don't have a volunteer army. You have a salvation army, and you are the general. He lived to be 83. By the time he died, the Salvation Army was already in 58 countries. 40,000 people came to his funeral, including Queen Mary. Booth was interviewed shortly before he died, and he said, I didn't have the best education. I certainly wasn't the smartest man in England. But from the time I was 15, I resolved that the Lord would have the best of William Booth. Amos would have said, that'll do it. 